Hi, this is Tom Zoller, creator of Long Distance Love and Capes, and best known for creating anybody for Dial H for Hero in Superboy number 35. And you are listening to the Quarter Bin Podcast. This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 109th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're looking at Marvel Superheroes Magazine, number one, from Marvel Comics, of course, cover dated October 1994. This issue features full-length reprints of Daredevil 159, Fantastic Four 232, Incredible Hulk 314, and Iron Man 115. The review and discussions of each of these four full-length issues will, of course, be slightly shorter than the traditional full-length review and discussion that issues get on the show. The goal is for this to not be four times as long as the average episode. But first, since what the heck, it's already going to be a long show, let's do some feedback. Vera Wild wrote in on episode 100, book 100, as a matter of fact. This is a topic that has been covered on Shortbox Showcase a couple of times, but I thought it was good to talk about it on this show as well. Good professor, I've been enjoying episode 100 of The Quarterbin, and I have a few thoughts to add to the discussion of Cerebus that was had with Luke Giaconetti. I'll preface by saying that largely I only know Cerebus by reputation. However, my thoughts are more broad and not excessively specific to the character. Luke is correct that it's a form of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, when a creator's controversial or abhorrent statements are taken as license to ignore or question the quality of what they've done as an artist prior to those statements. That being said, I do believe that it's wholly valid to reassess the messaging of previous work through the lens of new information about the beliefs of the creator. For example, Frank Miller's more recent output can certainly alter what one sees in his earlier work. But that reassessment need not automatically be, oh, well, he clearly has always had these issues. While Batman Year One certainly contains early hints at his fetishistic take on female characters, it also shows an understanding of the merits and the character of Batman that much of his work from the last 15 years indicates that Miller's completely lost since then. My point being that Sim's personal views, including his insistence, that anyone trying to contact him begin their correspondence with the phrase, I do not believe Dave Sim is a misogynist, are not grounds for declaring his work on Cerebus devoid of merit. They do, however, warrant a reassessment to chart what prevalence, if any, these ideas had in his earlier work. Separating artist and art sounds great in theory, but to do so completely presumes that art exists in a vacuum. Art exists as it does because of who the artist is and what they believe. And a greater understanding of that can lead to a greater understanding of the art itself. The trick becomes to remove questions of skill, talent, and execution 
from questions of intent or messaging. It's why Birth of a Nation is recognized as a seminal work of film despite its core messages, because skill transcends message. But the message still does matter all the same. I think I've rambled on enough. Keep up the great work. Sincerely, Vera Wild, gender-fluid vlogger and burlesque queen. All great points, Vera, and that's what makes it a controversial topic, that we all have different lines, different tripwires, that make someone or their work unacceptable. For example, one of the things that gets my goat is 9-11 truthers, of which Ed Asner is one. It seems I'm the only person who cares about this, as when he is brought up, it's in regards to Mary Tyler Moore or Up or Granny Goodness, and he's regularly referred to as Beloved or some other similar adjective. My own conspiracy? Theories about mainstream media tell me why he gets a pass on this, why his beliefs that 9-11 was an inside job is not brought up, but I can't find my tinfoil hat right now, so I won't go into details. And my favorite novel of all time was turned into an excellent Oscar-nominated movie back in 1979 starring the lovely Natasha Kinski. But it was directed and co-written by Roman Polanski. So I haven't seen it in a long time. It's a beautiful story, beautiful adaptation. He did a beautiful job directing it. But personally, I can't. And I try my best to not judge people too harshly who can watch and enjoy Tess. But those are just a few of my own issues, and I try to let people have their own version of, quote, terrible person whose work I won't support, unquote, and ask that they let me have mine. As we know from many sides of many issues, it's often the people who take the firmest line on, you can't judge me, who do the most judging of others. And yes, this is why I saved Cerebus for last on that episode. And Vera, keep up the rambling. We love it. Faithful feedbacker Nathaniel Wayne of the Council of Geeks, Punch Like a Girl, and maybe my favorite, Go Home Hollywood, You're Drunk, wrote in about a different segment from episode 100. Dear Professor, I've kind of dropped off in responding to the continuing saga of Quarterman 100, but your discussion of Darkhawk brought to light something that hadn't occurred to me, even when I dealt with one of his issues recently on 90s Comics Retrial. And that is how much Chris Powell's tale as Darkhawk is a bit of a 90s redo of Spider-Man. I'm talking thematically here, but it made me appreciate that in attempting to recapture that sense of handling young adult issues and superheroing, Marvel opted to make a whole new character rather than attempting to reboot or reset the character who'd done that in the past. It's something I wish was more commonplace rather than continually reestablishing old status quos, but alas, such is the industry, it would seem. Great work as always, geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. That's an interesting take on Darkhawk, Nathaniel, and I like the idea of them coming up with the idea, the concept, of revisiting the young hero, which you know, X-Men and Teen Titans had proven could be a profitable area, and trying to hit the jackpot again, but doing it with a new character. And as 
J. David Weeder pointed out in that segment, 50 issues isn't bad, but on the other hand, that ain't Spider-Man sort of longevity. The following statement is based a little bit on how you define things, but neither DC nor Marvel has come up with a, or many, truly original non-legacy powerhouse characters in a decade, two decades, three decades. I'm not counting Harley Quinn. She started on TV. So for them, the reboot is always the go-to answer or the legacy character. And that's given them a chance to introduce Miles Morales, Kamala Khan, Jessica Cruz, Simon Baz into characters and situations that have a better chance of succeeding than if they had introduced them as wholly new characters. There's something safer from a publishing perspective about relating these characters to existing properties than coming up with something new out of whole cloth. Nathaniel also wrote in about episode 107 and whether characters like Adam Strange have a place in this modern world of ours. I think you really hit on something with how finding out what space is actually kind of killed a whole genre of sci-fi. Once you knew for certain there were no princesses or dragons hiding on the moon, it didn't feel appropriate to read stories where that was the case. Evidently, Nathaniel thinks we've been to the moon. Oops, sorry, I did find my tinfoil hat after all. (laughs) These days, he continues, if you want stuff that fantastical, you usually have to go to fantasy, where worlds are built from scratch and are allowed to make their own rules. It still turns up in sci-fi from time to time, but generally only in Star Wars-style space operas. And yes, I think this is part of the issue for adapting Fantastic Four as well. A YouTuber I'm rather fond of, his channel is called Movie Bob, came up with a pretty well-thought-out pitch for how to do the FF now without having to reinvent that sense of pioneering or, or exploration. And that was to have the cosmic rays not only give them their powers, but knock them forward in time about 50 years or so. It allows them to retain that starting dynamic, but could also bring some interesting drama as the group tries to integrate into society. And I don't just mean fish-out-of-water comedy. Think about how female empowerment and body positivity would benefit characters like Sue and Ben, while Reed would find his father-knows-best archetype makes him the one without a place in the new world. Johnny would just roll with it because that's what he does. Again, I can't take credit for these ideas, but I thought they were worth sharing. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Again, thank you, Nathaniel. My updated FF pitch would involve them being space tourists on maybe like an Elon Musk type of SpaceX private rocket thing. Maybe they're family, maybe they're strangers. But things go wonky, uh, cosmic rays, and the rest is history. And maybe the Musk analog becomes their doom. But I'm intrigued by this idea you mentioned of adding the time displacement element as a potential source for drama. And maybe occasional humor. But I do agree with you, you don't need to lean into that. that. At some point that becomes a little too tropey. I wonder if Marvel was looking for a reason to put the classic, quote unquote, FF on ice. And the movies and studio issues gave them a chance to sideline the team, and they took it. 
Like I've said many times, I'm bummed that Strange, the Challengers, the Metal Men, that there's no room for them anymore. A lot of the, the noirish characters from the 30s fit in here too. Shadow, the Phantom, John Carter, Doc Savage, and others. I guess that makes it more impressive when a character from back then does manage to survive. Sherlock Holmes, Conan, Tarzan. The ones that last are much more often the exceptions, not the rule. And Robert Ward was the first of a handful of people to point out that Adam Strange is on his way to being, as he called him, a fancy pants TV star. That's a reference to Strange being cast on the upcoming Krypton show on the Sci-Fi Channel. And I don't know what to think of that. As long as Strange is the guy from the 1950s, 1960s, jetpack and a ray gun and a fin on his helmet, I could be in, I suppose. As long as they don't modernize him or gritty him up, I could be okay. I, I like the guy, but that means I'm hesitant. But it will be interesting to see what they do with him, that's for sure. On episode 108, we covered Moon Knight and that spider fella. And old school Ross commented, and I think he did so for the first time, Professor, please, Moon Knight, a ripoff of Batman? Surely not. I prefer thinking of him as a moonlit echo, if you will. Very entertaining episode. Love the moon talk. Good to hear from you, Ross. Remember, I didn't say Moon Knight was a ripoff of Batman. I said he was an improvement. The great Kansan Gregor Rujo had a few things to say about that episode as well. First, he said I could count him among those who would appreciate me tackling a kitty comic or two here on the quarter bin, although he admits that he started to bristle at that description. In the older Disney and Archie comics, once you get past the talking animals or teenage hijinks, there could be some solid storytelling. I totally understand where you're coming from on that, Greg. I even tend to agree with you, but I use the term and will probably continue to for a couple reasons. One, I think it's kind of cute. And two, I think it clearly communicates to other people the kind of books I'm talking about. Yes, there are Disney books with more intricate plotting and epic sweep than your average regular comic, but I think in terms of communication, the phrase is clear. I think when I say kitty comics, the image that people have in their mind of the kind of books I'm talking about, Archie's, Disney's, Harvey's, that's pretty accurate. So I don't know of another phrase that communicates what I mean by that term as clearly and accurately to most people as that term does. Greg continues, I love finding copies of Marvel Team Up in the discount bin. Totally agree. They're perfect examples of lazy Sunday afternoon comics, Rarely flashy, solid storytelling, usually done in one. Perfect reading material in between loads of laundry on a Sunday afternoon. Again, totally with you on that, Greg. The Great Kansan also commented about the comic for this episode. Yay, magazines! Back in the day, they were perfect lunch break material. Well, buddy, for old time's sake, I hope you're listening to this episode on your lunch break. Dr. Ange, from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary, wrote in on the issue of violence and nonviolence. That was part of that team-up issue. Interesting issue. I'm a sucker for the old-school team-up books. They open up the larger universes to me as an early reader. So I love finding them in cheap bins. 
And like the great Kansan pointed out, these books, Marvel Team Up, 2-in-1, DC Comics Presents, they are all over the cheap ends. As for the themes of violence and nonviolence, it's a good thing to think about. I loved these thought-provoking stories as a kid because, well, I would think about this stuff later. Nowadays, when comics are an escape from thinking about stuff, and because current creators tend to be more preachy and one-sided in their approach to heavy topics, I grow weary. I do find Spidey's complete inability to comprehend nonviolence interesting. With great power comes great responsibility, true, but maybe the responsibility is to not use that great power. While for me, Philip thrashing the white dragon makes sense, perhaps to him, the greater good would be to not resort to violence. Good stuff and good commentary. Thank you, Doctor. Interesting take on responsibility, and also on preachy comics. And certainly, those team-up books are always plucked from cheap bins when I find them. You know, I do wonder if nowadays the theme of this issue would be, Peter, you can't judge Philip. And we heard from Darren Sutherland. Half of the, hmm, I'd say 41% of the podcast team behind Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and the other one that starts with X's. Hi, Professor Allen. I'm doing a little catch-up on your show today by listening to QBP 107 and 108 and wanted to write. It was fun to hear you cover an Adam Strange story, knowing you're a big fan, and you handled the missing pages with a plum. You know, Darren, a plum was exactly what I was going for. It immediately reminded me of the excellent Adam Strange Future Quest crossover. Wondering what your thoughts were on that. Personally, I loved it. I thought it was a nice way to introduce the character for fans who aren't familiar with him. And, of course, it was easy for me to like it, since I'm a big fan of Johnny Quest. Let me answer this before he moves on to the last topic. Yes, it was so much fun to talk about Adam Strange. And I do agree with Darren that the Future Quest tie-in was very enjoyable. It was definitely one of the better of those crossovers. Though Space Ghost and Green Lantern was pretty solid as well. I talked about all four of the Hanna-Barbera crossovers on a comics reading journal a few months back. And then Darren goes to a topic I was hoping someone was going to mention. I did want to ask a question, however. I'm confused by your episode numbering. Episode 100 was six parts long, yes. So shouldn't that be episodes 100 to 105? And the next numbered episode should be 106 instead of 107. Did I miss an episode somewhere? Sorry, but I have to point out an inconsistency with numbering when it comes from a finance professor. Have a great day, my friend, Darren. Like I said, I was hoping someone would ask this question because there is an answer. Way back in the first year of the show, there was an episode 12 and a half. Meaning that from then on, every episode was one off, if you will. Episode 13 was actually the 14th episode. Episode 14 was the 15th. But please don't tell Shag about this. He gets very picky about these things. Shag's absolutely right. Oh, at two podcastings, Michael Bailey? This does mean that the classic episode 50 was actually the 51st episode of the show 
and that the six parts of episode 100 were technically the 101st through 106th episode, not as Darren assumed 100 to 105. So this was my chance to finally set it all straight. Darren's math analysis is correct, but with that additional episode 12 and a half, episode 107 was actually, finally, the 107th episode. As always, thanks for the feedback, everybody, and let me give you a chance to think about that math stuff for a minute or so. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll start our coverage of Marvel Superheroes Magazine number one. If you wake up with the blues, trying to fill your day with news, there's one thing you must remember, no agenda in the morning. For a healthy, balanced news diet, try noagendashow.com. In the morning, 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 in the morning. Other monitoring systems. And systems, special secret satellite systems, moon bases. Caliphate! Joe Biden, and thank you for taking the time to listen. Adios, mofo. The best podcast in the universe. Dvorak.org slash N-A. And we're back. Marvel Superheroes Magazine number one had an original cover price of $225, meaning I got an excellent 89% discount on this book. I mentioned at the end of last episode that I nabbed issues one through five of this title recently from my LCS, World's Greatest Comics, and I'm going to cover these on every number nine episode here at 109, then 119, 129, etc. The cover of Marvel Superhero Magazine number one by Derek Robertson shows all seven of our characters running right at us. The Thing is front and center looking tough, smoking a stogie. Daredevil is thrown his baton, Reed is stretching, Johnny is flamed on, the Hulk is angry, and Sue and Iron Man, well, they're on the cover too, I guess. I mean, it's not bad for a jam piece. It tells you who everyone is and who's going to be in the book. And there are blurbs on the side of the cover about each story. The format for these number nine issues might change as we work through these. I'm not totally sure what the best way is to efficiently cover four full-length stories. But we'll work it out, starting right here. In general, I think the approach I want to do is to designate one of these stories as the lead story and give that close to the kind of full coverage that we'd do if it were the only issue that we were covering here in the quarter bin. And then after break, come back and give the other three stories a much quicker perusal. But then the question is how to decide which story would be the lead story. My first thought was to do Hulk or Daredevil first, because I've already covered FF and Iron Man issues here on the quarter bin. But there was something about that idea that just didn't sit right with me. So then I thought maybe some sort of rotation among the the reprint titles in the book. Make sure each one gets the lead story treatment at least once. And I think I'm going to try to do that as the series rolls on with with 119, 129, etc. But in terms of which one to make the lead story for this episode, I made it simple. Spoilers, but I went with the one I enjoyed the most. And for this, issue one, that story was the reprint from Iron Man 115. 
The story, Betrayal, was written by Bill Mantlo with art by John Romita Jr. and Dan Green. Actually, based on the blurb on the title page for this story, I should say that this introduced the pulse-pounding pencils of J.R.J.R. The issue starts with the meeting of the Avengers, with them sending off the unicorn with Iron Man, while they go to look for Arsenal. Personally, I'd look in North London for Arsenal, because North London will always be red. Sorry, those are sports references. Uh, where was I? Right, after Iron Man uses airlifts and tractor beams to get the unicorn back to his lab, and joining a few others in the cryogenic chamber, he uses the memory extractor to scan the enemy's mind, which does give us almost three pages of unicorn history and backstory. But despite all this information and his best efforts, Tony is unable to learn the identity of Unicorn's master. All he knows is that it's someone he's encountered before, and it's a scientist of great skill. He decides that in the morning, he'll check on all his old enemies to see if one of them could be this mysterious other. Tony needs to head out in public, so he disables the life model decoy that has been appearing as him. I won't be needing your services any further, he tells uh, himself. I've kept a lady waiting long enough. Good point. Tony does not want to be competing with his LMD for the affections of the ladies. That could make for some awkward situations. He takes his Corvette out to meet Whitney, who he hasn't seen since yesterday. Well, I'll make it up to her, he thinks. Well, what he's probably really thinking is, I'm sure not going to let that life model decoy make it up to her. Anyway, Tony heads to his penthouse, where the doorman tells him that the lady arrived some time ago, sir. But once he's ridden up the 35 floors to get to the penthouse, he is in fact not greeted by Whitney. Waiting for him is Monk Kiefer. But you can call me Ape Man. Now, there's clearly an editorial mistake here. Uh, Roger Stern, or Jim Shooter falling asleep at the wheel. So obviously this must be a DC character. Because they are the kings of talking monkey characters. Actually, I'm counting this as an official DC Marvel crossover. I dare you to challenge me on this. Tony is shocked that Ape Man got in there. The entire floor is protected by alarms and defense systems. But that didn't keep away Frogman, who punches Tony nearly off his penthouse ledge. But before he can catch himself from going over, Birdman catches him, keeping him from going over. I don't know how you got in here or what you three want, but Birdman cuts him off, mocking him for not being able to count. And then another of the Animen enters the room and delivers a major consequence to Tony. Catman makes an even four. I've read Golden Age Catman stories, and I've read the DC character Catman, but I'm pretty sure this is the first time I've run across the Marvel character Catman. I guess everybody's trademark lawyers were asleep on this one? Tony does his best to put up a non-repulsor-powered fight, but it's tough. He does demand to know, what did you filthy animals do with Whitney Frost? Although calling them filthy animals is a bit speciesist of him. 
but he gathers himself for one final attack on the Animen on our penultimate page, and then he's struck by surprise from behind. As he slumps to the floor, we hear, we need Tony Stark's cooperation, not his corpse. And on the final page, Tony can't believe what's happening. That voice, it can't be, but it is. I've been betrayed. Of course, if Tony had read the opening page and knew that the story was called Betrayal, this might not have been as big a shock to him. Yes, Mr. Stark, it is I, Whitney Frost, or if you prefer, Madam Mask. And with Tony unconscious on the floor, Madam Mask and the Animen exposit the purpose of this attack. It turns out that her father, Count Nefaria, is now elderly, having been prematurely aged, and she intends for Tony to cure him or die. Like I said, I thought this story was really good. Mantlo does such a nice job moving the plot along, and I mean that literally. Tony moves from hanging with the Avengers to going to the lab to going to the penthouse. There's just such a nice and natural flow to the action. It's well-paced. It's well-designed, it's well-executed. Of course, it's a Marvel book, created, I assume, using the Marvel method, so J.R.J.R. certainly deserves his share of the credit for this smooth storytelling as well. The opening scene, wrapping up an Avengers adventure and the flashback scene detailing Unicorn's history, those were as exciting as those scenes could have been, given that they aren't inherently action-packed actions. And Bill Mantlo can be overly wordy at times, but I think he's reeled in pretty well here. There's a lot of Tony thought bubbling. But to my mind, if you've got the kind of mind that Tony has, solving the kinds of problems that he's solving, you know, in this world, a little inner monologue is deserved, I think. And I am using the word Tony here purposefully and not Iron Man, because although Iron Man is present in the first maybe third or half of the story. Even then, a lot of that time, he's only wearing part of the costume. Uh, maybe the visor's up, the chest plates are off, whatever. The most Iron Man-y thing that he does is fly the unicorn back to the lab, and that's around page four. And even then, though he is again in partial costume in the lab, that's Tony Stark time. That's Tony. He's the one doing the work there. Tony's the main character in the whole issue. And then as soon as he hops in the car to head to the penthouse, the armor is totally left behind. There is no Iron Man costume for the rest of the story. And that fight scene at the end, it's a pretty good one. It's not Animen versus Iron Man again. It's the Animen versus Tony Stark. There they are in the penthouse battling him. Not because he's Iron Man. That's not who they really want. They want Tony Stark. They go after Tony Stark. And I think that's a pretty bold storytelling choice, the vast majority of this issue is about the alter ego, not about the heroic identity. It's certainly not the first time this has ever happened or anything, and not the first or last time that Tony takes center stage as the lead character in these stories. But I still think it's kind of bold, and I like it here, and, and, and it was very well done. Oh, and by the way, the Animen, it's a wacky idea, and the characters are all wacky. They're not men in suits like Spider-Man's uh, animal-themed opponents tend to be. No, these guys seem to be a talking bird, a talking gorilla, a talking cat, 
and a talking frog. I guess since Toad was already taken as a name in the Marvel U, they had to go with Frogman. Anyway, as wild and wacky as that team is, they did give the civilian version of Tony a tough time. And that's reasonable. I do like that he's courageous, he's heroic, to the extent that his lack of actual powers will allow him to be. And he's ready to go in for a knockdown, drag-out, four-against-one fight. Madam Mask karate-chopping him unconscious is actually a mercy. But she does point out with the line that they need him alive. They, they, they need his mind, not his corpse. Spoilers, but my second favorite story in this book is the Daredevil one, which also has a dramatic reveal at the end. But this ending was really strong, and to me that pushed it over the finish line to make it my favorite story. Not just that ending final page, that, that, that reveal of Madame Mask, but this whole final act from when he appears in the penthouse looking for Whitney. That scene, that, that entire ending, was so good that that's what made this my favorite story in the issue. So good work, Bill Mantlo, and good work, J.R.J.R. Just so you know, these magazines are not random reprint issues. The goal was to reprint long runs, long storylines. Now, the title was canceled long before some of the plans that they talked about could happen. And even by the time we get to issue four, issue five, there's a little bit of change to that. But for a while, we get consecutive issues of all of the titles. In other words, when we get to issue two of this, in episode 119, we will get the next Iron Man issue. So we will see where the story goes, and I'm looking forward to that. All right, I'm going to take a break here, and like I said, when we come back, we'll do quick reviews and discussions of the stories featuring Daredevil, as I mentioned, and also the Hulk and the FF. Hey, Brian. What's up, Paul? Do you like comic books? I do. I love the funny books. Do you like listening to people talk about comic books? Why, yes, Paul. I find that both entertaining and informative. Well, that's great, because there's a new podcast where each episode a famous run or story arc is discussed in detail in a fun and totally not rambling way. It's called The Collected Edition. The Collected Edition? That sounds intriguing. Who are the hosts? Well, that's the best part. It's us, Paul Matthew Carr and Brian Reese. What? Fantastic! I love us. We're awesome. Where can folks find this amazing podcast, Paul? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked. The Collected Edition can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, as well as online at CollectedEditionPodcast.com. That's great! I'm going there right now. Me too! And we're back again for the three remaining stories. I'm just going to cover these in the order that they're presented in the book and with not quite as much detail as we did the lead story. We start with a reprint of Fantastic Four 232, Back to the Basics, written and penciled by John Byrne and inked by Bjorn Hain, who is also John Byrne, but that might be a secret. Don't Actually, the theory behind his use of a pen name for the inking was that he wasn't known as an inker at this point in his career and didn't know how those inks would be received. So he distanced himself from them, at least to whatever extent an anagram of your own name serves as 
distance. We start with Diablo, the master of arts alchemical. Arcane potions fill the air with their noxious fumes, and candlelight glimmers in eyes not a little mad. I think burn means mad here in both its definitions, actually. There are little images of the FF burning, and Diablo promises that soon I shall destroy them as easily as I have conjured these images. But even as Diablo cackles at his anticipated victory, his neighbor, Mrs. Milligan, knocks on the door, calling out to him, Mr. Obeyed! Mr. Obeyed! See, now we see where John Byrne got the Bjorn Hain idea. This issue is full of anagrams, or at least technically, Olbade is just Diablo, spelled backwards. The neighbor wants to know what the terrible smells are, and Olbade, using a masking spell, tells her that he wouldn't think of cooking in his room. Fortunately, soon she will pay, and all her sniveling, snooping ilk will be crushed beneath Diablo's heel. He sends his primal spirits out to seek out his enemies and crush the Fantastic Four. Which, as far as villain goals go, I kind of support this one. Anyway, (laughs) at one of Manhattan's most exclusive beauty salon, Sue Storm Richards is getting her hair done. The hairdresser notices something happening across the street at the construction site. What it is, is a big, ugly, earthen, dirt monster thing. I am come for she who is the invisible girl. They battle, and he fills the room with flying, clinging dirt coating her. It's hardening like cement. I can't move. A few short blocks away, Ben Grimm and Alicia Masters exit a performance of Elephant Man, which has moved Ben to tears. Then he is attacked by H2O. A bubble of water. It's all around me, moving when I move. He'll drown soon. Gotta keep calm. If I panic, I'm done for. No matter how deep he burrows to get away, this blasted water bubble stays with him. And as a blood-red veil begins to draw closed across the thing's brain, the Human Torch flies over Central Park and lands next to Frankie Ray, his old girl buddy. But before they can get to their deepest feelings, a whirlwind whips them up, then drops Frankie to the ground. Johnny is spinning too fast. He can't flame himself on. He is dropped as well onto some rocks and slumps into semi-consciousness. Just minutes away, Reed Stretchyface is attacked by a flame person, who he assumes is Johnny, but is not. I am he who is the living flame, and I am your death, Reed Richards. Oh, if only, if only. But Reed bounces away, only his speed saving him from serious injury. So close, so close. He, Reed, turns into a giant sail, and while he floats over Central Park, Frankie Ray waves him down. She says that a wind thing attacked him, and Reed knows what's happening. The elements are attacking them, and they need to find Sue and Ben. Sue has used a force field to escape the dirt monster and flees onto the street. She tracks down Ben at the theater that they were at while he sees a sporting goods store nearby, hoping that they have 
scuba gear. The sales girl recognizes the thing, recognizing that a water bubble is surrounding him and recognizes that he needs a scuba tank. Here, ladies and gentlemen, is the actual heroine of the issue. He manages to escape the water bubble, which then takes over the sales girl, but the thing sets her free too. As the water bubble is ready to attack Thing again, Sue uses a force field to protect him. The dirt monster attacks Sue again, but Ben is able to clobber in time him to pieces. Reed and Johnny arrive, and all four elemental beings are defeated through the power of transmutation. Ben worries that they're committing murder by destroying the elements, but Reed convinces him that no, these were not actually technically living beings. So Reed loves killing these things, but Galactus, eh, he lets him go scot-free. Nice to know that his ethics are as flexible as his body. Later, at FF's HQ, Stretchy Boy explains that he thinks alchemy was used against them. Thing points out that that means Diablo? You've slipped a cog, Reed. He's dead. I saw him die in a solar furnace. But Reed explains what every comic book reader knows. We saw no body, Ben. And with a little help from Dr. Strange on the last page, they nab Diablo on his sneaky way out of town. And as the FF depart, Dr. Strange actually gets the last words, thinking that they and the FF battle common foes, albeit in their own way, as long as men like Diablo seek to turn the world's natural order to their own evil purposes. The end. I think this was a pretty great choice for this reprint title. It's the start of the burn run, his first issue, so a great place to start and he does a pretty good job giving each member their own scene their own setting their own fight and then they all come together as a team to defeat a recurring enemy i mean he does a lot of stuff really well here first of all in sue's scene at the salon the hairdresser comments that this new look is gonna make her look 20 years younger to which she snarkily replies Wonderful, Milo. I'm sure my husband will love being married to a child. Of course, depending on your interpretation of the earliest timelines in Marvel history, Sue was indeed a child when he met her. That line, the specific wording of it, Byrne had to have been making a joke there, a sly reference to Reed and Sue's interesting history. That line can't be there for any other reason. Also, historically in these books, Johnny gets knocked out a lot, gets knocked unconscious. And in this case, when the whirlwind drops Johnny, Byrne makes sure that he is very specifically knocked semi-conscious. Again, I think that Byrne is making a very, very inside joke with that line. And Diablo is a good villain to start with. He's not a major FF villain, but he is a legitimate FF villain, if, if you know what I mean. And I guess that Frankie Ray is a character that Byrne brought back for his run, at least the first year or so of it, uh, from what I understand. I like that he's taking these parts of continuity, these bits and pieces of FF history, and using them, referencing them as his run starts. It's a nice way to ease readers into his style of storytelling, giving them enough bits of familiar stuff. I would guess that there would be a comfort level with this issue for older readers of FF. It's just a handing off of the reins to another creator who's definitely going to put his mark 
on the title, but is doing that within the constraints of the history up to that point. Good stuff. Next up is a reprint of Daredevil 159, the story marked for murder. was written by Roger McKenzie and arted by the great team of Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen. From what I can tell, this is Miller's second issue, penciling the title six issues from here, he'd start writing it as well. A group of assassins for hire are gathered around a table watching video clips of Daredevil. But no, this is not a fan club. A Mr. Poindexter wants to hire one of them to kill the hero. A small-time mobster named Eric Slaughter takes the contract for a cool half a million. The next day, Slaughter sends some of his thugs to the courthouse to observe Nelson and Murdoch in action. They want them to deliver a message to Daredevil, since he has an arrangement with the lawyers. They jump the guys in the alley outside the law office to deliver the message that Daredevil is to meet Mr. Slaughter tonight at midnight on Pier 42. Otherwise, they'll be back to finish the job. To avoid any further threats against Foggy, Daredevil complies with the mobster's wishes, of course he knows it's a trap, and scans the area with his radar senses, finding all of the hidden henchmen, and one by one, he knocks out each of Slaughter's goons when they refuse to provide the information that he wants, which is who put the contract out on him, which is not a crazy request. But before Daredevil can interrogate the last criminal, that man is killed by Poindexter. And in the final page, the epilogue, we see Poindexter's plan, that he knew Slaughter couldn't kill, kill Daredevil. His goal was to get even more film on, on the hero so that his movements could be recorded and studied later. This is all part of his revenge scheme. Over a newspaper, front page, announcing the return to New York of Black Widow, we hear, first I'll break your woman, then I'll break you, because in my hands anything is a deadly weapon, and that's how you'll die, Daredevil, at the hands of Bullseye. I really liked this one. Like I said, second favorite story of the issue. The setup, the action, the legal stuff. The, the secret identities are involved. The reveal of Bullseye at the end. All of that is good. And like I said before, this story continues in the next issue of the magazine. So in 10 more episodes, back here on the Quarterbin, we'll see what comes next. And it's a real treat to see Frank Miller this early in his career, this hungry. According to Comic Book DB, this is something like his 10th professional credit. And this has the feel of an excited young artist getting his first big break. And, and he's going to do everything he can to take advantage of that first big break. It's dynamic. It's exciting. There's a great sense of movement when Daredevil is performing his, his acrobatics. Now, this is the era of the 17-page stories and normally I don't like that because I like getting more for my money. But of course, here packaged as part of four books for one price, having a shorter story doesn't have that negative impact for me. As a matter of fact, the fact that this is on the short side it gives it a real sense of pacing. It barrels along at quite a clip, and before you know it, it's over. It moves quick, but not in the decompressed 2000s sort of way. A lot happens here. Multiple scenes, multiple settings, multiple action sequences. 
So I didn't get the feeling that I got ripped off by the shorter story size. You know, the common complaint nowadays, and often rightly so, is that you have you know a four-issue story that gets stretched into a six-issue series to fit the trade. This issue is more like a traditional 20 or 22-page story stuffed into a 17-page frame, and that's okay. I like that this book took some time to read, and that, as I like to describe it, stuff happened. Another good story, and again, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. That brings us to the last story of the issue, a reprint from Incredible Hulk 314, the story Call of the Desert. Written and penciled by John Byrne and inked by Bob Wyacek. And the reason I know how to pronounce Wyacek is because somewhere 30 plus years ago, I read that in a Stan Soapbox or a DC Ask the Answer Man. Somewhere along the line, it was asked, how do you pronounce that man's name? And they said, think of it like you're going to the store, and instead of the customer paying cash, you ask, why a check? So that dumb little joke from literally 30 to 35 years ago is the only reason I know that that is pronounced Bob Wyacek. For purposes of full disclosure, I found a pretty good synopsis for this issue somewhere online. I really can't remember exactly where, and I did use that as a jumping-off point for crafting this synopsis. Uh, This story, by the way, follows the events of Alpha Flight 29. I know. Only Shag cares. The Hulk is back on Earth after a recent interdimensional jaunt, but despite the long exile coming to an end, the Emerald Giant is back, and he's not happy to be back on Earth. But then again, no matter where he is, he's almost never happy. Hulk leaps across the Colorado Rockies, And when he lands, he startles a buck. When it tries to ram into the Hulk, he snaps its neck with a single backhanded blow. The Hulk examines the body momentarily, his confusion even greater than a moment ago. There was once a time when the Hulk would have understood at least dimly what had happened to the stag. But he leaps off, and the Hulk's overhead passage is witnessed by a young boy who also sees a strange ship a flying saucer of some kind, buzz overhead, maybe chasing the Hulk. The child runs back to town to tell everyone what he's seen. At Northwestern University, just outside of Chicago, Professor Leonard Doc Sampson is in his office. He's been working in the psych department since the Hulk was exiled from Earth. A faculty colleague informs him that his old buddy has been spotted in Colorado. Sampson tells the others that he'll be taking some leave and leaps towards where he believes the Hulk is heading. Meanwhile, at an apartment that Betty Ross has been sharing with her new boyfriend, Ramon, she snaps at him for calling her babe. Ramon turns on the radio, and Betty hears that same news report about the Hulk, and she knows what she must do. Twelve hours later, Doc Samson arrives at the ruins of Gamma Base his long green hair flowing majestically in the breeze. He assumes that Hulk will be drawn here as it's the only place he can consider home. Doc flashbacks, the accident that led to the birth of the Hulk, and the very creature he is seeking lands right before him with a mighty shoom. Samson 
makes the mistake of calling the Hulk by Bruce Banner's name. And he pleads with the inner Banner to try to take control. This sends Hulk into a frenzy. They trade consequences. And Doc Samson is quickly defeated. And then suddenly the Hulk begins to hallucinate, which is the Bruce Banner personality trying to assert itself. And Hulk ends up fighting imaginary foes. The Juggernaut, Modoc, the Rhino, the Abomination, and the Leader. Witnessing the Hulk fighting at nothing but thin air, Samson bides his time, recovering his strength. When he goes to resume his fight, Hulk assumes that he is also just an illusion. Doc Samson takes advantage of this and manages to land a blow that is strong enough to knock out the Hulk. With the battle over, Samson is optimistic that Banner is more of a conscious entity within the Hulk than he had been before. And that means Banner can be saved. Banner can be removed from his living prison forever. I know that there are many of my comic book podcasting buddies who are mega fans of the Hulk, who place the Hulk solidly in their their top ten, top five characters. But not me. I've read very, very few Hulk comics in my life and, and don't have a real desire to see what I've missed all these years. He just doesn't resonate with me much for whatever reason. I see all the potential for the drama, the, the, the Frankenstein monster reference or, or the Jekyll Hyde parallels, all that stuff and more. Maybe I'm impacted negatively by the TV show, which I thought even when I was seeing it contemporaneously was a bit cheesy. I mean, I like Bill Bixby. I like him in many of his roles. He had a real grounding, a real humanity. But there's not a lot of 70s TV that I think does hold up. Columbo holds up. Hi, Bob Fisher. A lot of that first season of Wonder Woman actually holds up. But Hulk? I don't see it. Maybe it's a DC bias. I, I, I don't know. So as a kid, I never became a fan of the Hulk TV or comics. And then as I grew up, I just never got to liking the character. That having been said, I did kind of like this issue. I kind of like Doc Sampson in this issue, for one thing. Maybe I'm biased here again, supporting an academic colleague of mine. Although, when I have to take time off to miss a few classes, to say nothing of uh, faculty meetings or committee work, there's a bit more of a process involved than just announcing you're going to miss some time and then leaping off across the country. And I did kind of like the fact that it took him 12 hours to leap to where the Hulk was. To me, there's a sense of, of realism there. It would take time. Samson does admit that his leaps are not as powerful and majestic as the Hulk's, uh, giving an explanation for what would seem like a pretty long time frame. But I like that. That, again, to me, gives this a whole sense of, of, of grounding. Oh, and uh, full disclosure, there are no faculty members on my campus with green hair. Although, one day I had blue hair, but that's because I lost a bet to a student. But that's a story for another day. Back to the realistic stuff. I do like that they put Doc Sampson at a real university, Northwestern, in the correct suburb, Evanston, of the correct city, Chicago. Of course, Marvel's philosophy often involves utilizing real cities or real states. But they've been hesitant to use a real university, Empire State U., not a real college. 
So I was glad that Northwestern, a very good real-world college, by the way, gets a shout-out here. So this was, again, a solid story, solid theme, great fight scenes, even if many of them just turned out to be in the Hulk's head. And like I've said about every story in this issue, I look forward to reading number two, seeing where all of these storylines go, and to talking about them ten episodes from now. The Verdict on Marvel Superheroes Magazine, number one. 96 pages of solid content. John Byrne, Bill Mantlo, Frank Miller. Are you kidding me? Absolute, top of the line, 100% quarter bin steel. I am getting tired from patting myself on the back so much for grabbing these ones. Well, that wraps up my coverage of Marvel Superheroes Magazine number one, bringing episode 109 to a close. In episode 110, we'll be looking at a work by the birthday boy, the king, Jack Kirby. And probably not the only Kirby or Kirby-related book that we'll do in this, the year of his 100th birthday. And that work of his that we'll cover next episode is The Eternals, number nine, from Marvel Comics, cover dated March 1977. If you have any questions or comments about these issues, the episode, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.